Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Hello? Hi, Jim. It's Hi, Catherine. Hi, Maeve. Oh, wait. <laughs> I tricked you. <laughs> I was fooled there for a second. Um, you're back with us this week. Yeah, I'm back. And I, That's great. I have Catherine here. No, I don't. I don't have her. She's safe and well. <laughs> she is. Um, this is Social Distance, a podcast from The Atlantic about the pandemic, usually joined by Catherine Wells. She's off launching a brand new show called The Experiment, which I'm very excited to listen to. But sitting in for Catherine again this week is Maeve Higgins. We are grateful to have you, Maeve. Thank you for coming on again. Thank you, Jim. How have you been? Look, I'm having little bursts of sunshine from things that are not pandemic related. I know that um, it was good to talk to you last week and to co-host the show. And one thing that came from it was, you know, we were on Twitter afterwards. And then a woman said, Oh, I've named my chicken after Maeve Higgins. She's named a hen Maeve Higgins. Did you see that? I did. Mm-hmm. And how do you feel about that? <laughs> Thrilled. She's absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> oh, I, oh, there's a photo of the hen. I asked her for a photo. Yeah. I mean, I don't I wouldn't mind if it was like some grotesque creature, like, you know, one of those ones with very few feathers, like a rescue hen, you know, and like a soft beak. But this is a magnificent hen. It looks like two hens on top of each other. Oh, my it's, gosh. Yeah. And the full name, Maeve Higgins, my full name. Wow. That's great. Yeah. That came of me doing the podcast because, you know, Catherine is busy working on the experiment. And I just need to check. Have you had any animals named after you? Mm, not to my knowledge. So. Right. Yeah, that, that seems there. to be the first uh, thing <laughs> that you've accomplished that I haven't. Um, <laughs> and, wow, that's great. Yeah, and another bright spot that's come out of us speaking on this podcast is that we're hearing from listeners who are getting vaccinated. Do you want to hear from them? A couple yeah. of people have. Okay. So remember, it was your, I, this is unbelievable. It was your 100th episode earlier this month. And uh, inspired by that, we got this voicemail from a listener. Hi, Tim and Catherine. Congratulations on 100. I feel bad saying that during a pandemic, but you've gotten me through so much. I want to let you know that I was able to listen to your 100th episode today while I was sitting and waiting after my COVID vaccine at Stanford. Thanks so much, you guys. Bye-bye. That's wonderful. Isn't it great? Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for that voice note. It's so cool. And then another listener, Elizabeth, wrote in. She actually sent a picture of her vaccination record card. Like it's like stamped with CDC logo. Uh, yeah. It looks legitimate. <laughs> um, and she yeah. wanted to thank you. She said, your November 11th episode on the Pfizer vaccine helped me to better understand why the speed of the development shouldn't be concerning. I'm thankful of that timing 
that November episode timing because I accepted a job with my local hospital system working on what has now become a COVID floor and I was able to get my first vaccine on the 28th of December. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I feel like the vaccine news is good but there's also like the bad news from it like you know that Merck stopped I guess theirs just didn't work so they stopped is that right well I, yes that is as I understand it but you know we equally well could be in a world where that uh, that level of vaccine was the best we had you know mm. um you know we really defied expectations with the findings of the current vaccines right and we have multiple vaccines that seem to work really well. So it's totally unsurprising that some of them would not work as well. And we're oh, really for fortunate. sure. Yeah. But what about like the new strains? Yeah. The vaccines still appear to be working well against the new variants. There's some concern that they eventually might not, uh, that we might have to update them. But overall, things are still sound in terms of how they're working. And it's just, a, you know, a logistical question of distribution and, and equity. And what about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine? As I understand, we will have news on that next week. I've gotten a little yeah. spoiled because with yeah. Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna, it ended up being just really good data. It got approved really quickly. We haven't yeah. seen hiccups in how it seems to be working or, you know, unexpected side effects. And I don't want to take for granted that the same thing is going to happen, that Johnson & Johnson's results are going to mm -hmm. be just as good as we might anticipate. But it sounds, from all indications, like it will be very good news. And that will be an especially important vaccine for parts of the world that don't have the ability to right. have the, the cold chain with the super refrigerated uh, oh, short Oh, because it's chains. just like a one-shot, like, warm. It's warm. Y yeah. <laughs> it's <a> warm vaccine. <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. I mean, that does sound nice, doesn't it? Like a nice, warm, toasty <laughs> vaccine. <laughs> My brother-in-law actually works in Johnson & Johnson, but I don't think that's going to make any difference. He gives us free shampoo, at Christmas oh, and stuff. But. Well, we should have disclosed that at the top. <laughs> so, um, okay, so who do you want to speak to this week? Well, I think a lot of us are hearing that, at least in the U.S., we've turned a corner that cases are going down and the hospitalizations are going down. And I think that's uh, a more complex message than it might seem. Right. And I wanted to look more granularly at the data, you know, understand if that's actually true and then what it really means and whether it will keep up. So our good friends, Rob Meyer and Alexis Madrigal, who helped start the COVID tracking project and have been covering the numbers for the Atlantic throughout, are going to come back on the show once again and walk us through this apparently historic moment. Hmm. Uh, so let's call Rob and Alexis. Okay. Hello. Hello, friends. Hi. Hey, guys. It's a party. Meet Maeve, Rob, <laughs> Alexis, Maeve Higgins. Maeve, it's great to meet you. Hey, Maeve. Hi. Hi. Lovely to meet you. I'm, I'm hoping that me and the listeners will be able to tell everyone's voices apart. <laughs> Alexis, are you in California these days? I am in California, Oakland. And Rob, where are we finding you? I'm in D.C. Guys, there's 
good news in the air of turning a corner, and we wanted to talk to you about what that does and doesn't mean. Are we at the peak here nationally in terms of cases and hospitalizations for certain? And should we celebrate? I can start, and then I'll leave it to Rob to uh, put in all the caveats. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I feel remarkably optimistic right now, um, at least for the next month or two. Um, the numbers are really dropping. Um, we're seeing really the lowest case numbers that we've seen uh, since November and December in states. We're seeing hospitalizations way off their peak and dropping really rapidly. You know, deaths, we think, are going to have a different path. You know, the lag time between when somebody dies and when it's reported, um, there's sort of a tranche of those deaths that get reported kind of right away. And then there's sort of this longer lag period where more deaths fill in. So I think it could be some weeks before we really start to be like, okay, deaths have really come down. But those things have basically already happened by this point. And so I, I'm feeling pretty optimistic. Obviously, I'm sure the variants will be something that we'll talk about. They seem like this kind of big question mark. And the thing that isn't a question mark <laughs> is that there's been a lot of vaccinations of older people, particularly in the long-term care facilities, which we think make up 40 to 50% of the deaths. And so those two things combined, the falling cases for everybody right now, and then just knowing that so many older folks are now vaccinated, yeah. um, at least with one dose and many with two, has, has made me feel pretty good. So I think we should leave it there. Okay. And... <laughs> yeah, let's not complicate that picture at all. Um... You know, I read, Rob, your piece, and this line really, it's been haunting me. It's the allure of vaccination is beginning to stymie mitigation policy in some places. And I was like, oh, God, <laughs> because that's all wrong, right? Like, that's like, you get a cut and you hear the nurses on the way. So you like, remove the bandages and let it bleed every or something. It's just so spooky. Can you explain that? Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so in Arizona, all the numbers are now heading in the right direction, which is positive. Obviously, um, Arizona at this point has been basically an epicenter twice. It was one of the worst states during the summer surge, and it was one of the worst states during this current surge. Uh, but the governor, Doug Ducey, basically refused to put any of the public health measures that he put in uh, in the summer, and which did seem to play a role in successfully mitigating the summer surge. He refused to put them in this time because he said, well, there's a vaccine on the way. Hmm. You know, the vaccine is the true end to this pandemic. <laughs> so it, it doesn't make sense to do anything else, basically. But we've seen, you know, governors and mayors from both parties, maybe they're not refusing to put in measures, but they're loosening the measures before cases have fallen the level that they put them in. You know, so here in D.C., indoor dining is being allowed again. You can eat indoors now in, in Baltimore, in Chicago, uh, in, in all of Michigan. Yeah. We're seeing just a general loosening of measures, even though, as Alexis said, the, you know, the trajectories are moving in the right direction, but the overall levels of illness and infection are still pretty high. I mean, there's still more than 100,000 people hospitalized with COVID in the country right now. Uh, it's yeah. a lot of people. It's more than there ever <laughs> were uh, over the summer, for instance. But the, the trajectories are really positive. They're changing really quickly. Now, you say like, well, 
the trajectories are what matter because we're moving. Hospitalizations are dropping so quickly. We're going to be back to an encouraging level soon. You know, the problem is that soon is still <laughs> two or three or four weeks away. Mm-hmm. In terms of whether we just saw the peak of hospitalizations in the pandemic period, I think there's still a big question about whether basically we have time. If you look at you know the vaccination schedules we expect right now, and barring the arrival of another vaccine, the question is, do we have time for another surge? <laughs> basically, I, I, I'm sure I'll feel regretful about saying this. I would be stunned if we saw a surge at the same level, unless things turn around really soon. Like if we follow the pattern of previous surges, which maybe we won't, again, there's question marks about these variants, but it's not like we've seen major metro areas have a surge and then three weeks later have another surge. Like that's not how it has worked. And Mm -hmm. At this point, there were so many places that were hit hard in the fall and winter that it would take really different behavior at a population level to to see things get really bad again in the next like month or two. And during that time is when you're expecting these vaccines to roll out to people who are 70 plus in fairly large numbers, million a day, you know, so you're talking like you vaccinate another 30 million people or whatever. That's going to be a lot of the deaths. Um, And so even if you were to see some other kind of surge, you'd be in better shape there. In terms of the hospital system, you've got the the hospital workers will by and large um, be vaccinated. And so you won't have the problem that was happening with, you know, not just straight on the hospital, but all these people who had to be out of work because they had COVID as well. So that isn't a problem anymore. Like, I just think the, the chance that we have passed the very worst is extremely high in my view, but I mean, the tail of this could still be quite gnarly. And so I'm optimistic about the direction again, but the shape of that tail is is something that I don't think we have a firm fix on yet. Yeah, Jim and myself were talking earlier about, you know, the emergence of new variants and I'm in Ireland at the moment and what we're calling it the UK strain has totally taken over our country too. And the prime minister here said it's spreading at a rate that surpassed the most pessimistic models available to us. <laughs> so, Well, I mean, this is, I, I guess, why I might have marginally more concern than Alexis. There's kind of two questions here. The first is, mm-hmm. well, how widespread is the UK variant in the US? Yeah. And just how transmissible is it? You know, is it so transmissible that populations that have been playing it pretty safe so far are now going to get it using, you know, their COVID avoidance regime yeah, <laughs> that worked yeah, previously, exactly. right? Like, yeah, yeah. are we suddenly going to open up new populations to the virus? And the second one is like, well, is the UK strain the only strain we have to worry about in the US? Until recently, I mean, even now, we're just not doing that much genomic surveillance of the virus in the US. And what that means is that if there were say an Illinois strain or a Florida strain, we wouldn't necessarily know. You know, yeah. we do know that there's a California strain, for instance, but it's still unclear whether that particular variant of the virus is more transmissible in the same way the UK strain is, or whether this California strain just got lucky and like had a few fluke super spreading events and happened to dominate California, but it, it is not biologically significantly oh, different. It's just from the like other popular. Way. It's not actually 
powerful. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, going into the winter, there were a lot of questions about seasonality, what seasonality is, would it have a major effect? And, you know, I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that what seasonality is, is like fully been answered satisfactorily. However, clearly the winter was really bad and worse than um, even anticipated in the U S and if seasonality is the thing, if that was really a significant factor, then that should be wind at our back. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like I've been quite gloomy at times, like throughout the mm-hmm. pandemic about like what, what lay ahead of us. Quite, I must say. And, yeah. <laughs> and I, I guess I think vaccination is being underplayed as, uh, as, a, as a factor in reducing deaths. Right. And it just seems like, this somewhat mysterious entity of seasonality or factor of seasonality is also something that just, you know, kind of isn't really coming into, um, into a lot of the discussions right now. And and maybe that's just because the Mm -hmm. variant is sufficiently, the variants of concern are sufficiently scary that, you know, we don't want anyone to let up, but I just, that, Mm -hmm. that kind of tactical communication, and I'm not saying that's what Rob's doing. I think Rob is genuinely concerned about the variants, but, um, no, I mean, I agree with you. I think there is there is a lot of communication that's happening right now that's like, don't let up, don't let up, don't let up, that is not as justified by the data as it might like. But if you want me to stake my credibility to uh, to we just saw the absolute worst that things were ever, I, I just would want to attach <laughs> a, few ast- a few more asterisks to it and a few more like unknown unknowns. I think it's more that we just have these unknown unknowns. If we do have another search, it will be later than we might expect because it's like looking at distant stars. Just really boring. Yeah, exactly. No, if you look at a star that's like 100 light years away, right, you're looking at the star as it was 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that because not everyone gets tested, that because uh, it takes time for the virus to incubate in someone, we know it just takes a lot of time for us to see changes in the world in our data. And when we look at cases going down, what we're really looking at is like infections were going down a week ago. And looking forward, like if we expect a surge, what we're really saying is like, by the time we even start to see that in the data, it would have to be like six weeks from now, just because of how long it takes these things to show up in the data. And I think there is a chance that kind of at the very moment that vaccinations really open up to the general public in April, we also see our last peak of cases. I do think Alexis is right, though, that we've just will have vaccinated a lot of the most vulnerable population by then. Mm-hmm. And what we'd be more worried about in that kind of final surge is not so much deaths as just, you know, this is not a fun illness to get. There's a lot of long-term yeah. uh, problems that we don't fully understand. And like, if we could avoid another 50,000 people potentially having to deal with those problems, you know, we would. Right. So you'd be pretty confident saying that we don't, uh, that we might have another surge in, in cases, but that we've probably passed our peak of hospitalizations and deaths. Unless there's something really wrong about the vaccination data yeah, in care facilities, that. it would be really hard to get more deaths. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the message people are hearing. It is, it sounds very optimistic, and yet these net numbers are still very high. And the way we play this out between now and the summer, it's easy to lose track of those stakes because we're the numbers are already so high, you know? Mm-hmm, that, totally. So I'm wondering, maybe Alexis, you could talk about 
California specifically, are we potentially letting up on uh, the basis of this future that's just not quite here yet? Yeah. You know, the policies that states have enacted have not always had to me a totally clear (laughs) and explicable relationship with what is happening in that state's data. And some of that is the lagginess that Rob was talking about. Um, California, you know, has pulled out of shelter in place. I think the thing that's really tough for me is we went into shelter in place like fairly long time ago and I'm, Mm -hmm. it's hard to see the inflection there of like the state making an ask of its population and then them doing something differently. Um, right now the numbers in California are like borderline unbelievable encouraging over the last, like say five days, like it was still looking quite bad even a week ago. And now, you know, we're seeing numbers that we we haven't seen since literally November, um, in terms of cases. So was California wrong or right to let up on restrictions? Well, you know, I think there's such a level of exhaustion that I think like people are kind of just doing what they were going to do anyway, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we ran a a great story by Julia Marcus about the way that European public health authorities are playing the vaccine versus the way we're playing it in the U.S. Mm -hmm. European public health authorities are saying like, awesome, the vaccines are going to make life much better. You Mm -hmm. know, this is what we've been waiting for. They don't really say awesome in Europe. You know, (laughs) I was a translator. What do they say? American audience. (laughs) Groovy. Rad. They say rad. Um, Yeah. Surf's up. The vaccine's on the way. (laughs) (laughs) That's the accent I should have adopted for this. Um, Yeah, but they've been they've been saying this is going to be good, and I I think right now like a burst of like listen, yes good things are on the way, like focusing Mm -hmm. on the brightness of the light instead of the darkness of the tunnel to me feels certainly what I'm telling myself. I'm not sure that I should be able to tell anyone else how they should be feeling right now, but right now (laughs) I feel like that's what I need is to be like, look at that. This is going to mean every time someone gets infected in a long-term care facility, their chances of dying are drastically reduced, you know, and Mm -hmm. that's true in most places. And I don't know, I I feel like I need that right now in order to maintain the sort of, you know, COVID countermeasures that I have been in for what feels like five lifetimes. Right. You know, someone asked me about testing yesterday. Like, do you think now we'll finally fix testing? And the answer is, there might be a point in the future where most of us are vaccinated and society is basically back, at which point the kind of testing regimes we we're all expecting to arrive in April and May of last year, will make sense. We'll be able to kind of surveil whole populations for any presence of the virus again. And when the virus does appear, it'll be a big deal. And there'll be a lot of need for testing. But like, Mm -hmm. there is a whole pandemic playbook Mm -hmm. of policies that we thought we were going to play in March and April of last year. You know, March and April of last year, we thought testing was going to be a huge deal. We thought people would be able to return to their offices pretty soon. And we thought we were going to have public health strategy around smashing the virus, getting it to really low levels so that then we could have a summer closer to the one that 
Europe had. It turned out the Trump administration, many local state governments had basically no interest in that kind of policy. And once we decided not to suppress the virus, a lot of these policy questions became much harder to answer because we, we weren't aiming to do the things that the policies are designed to do. We never like developed another playbook of policies. <laughs> we never figured out like, or really we just developed it on the fly. Yeah, we went half-assed and, Sweden, right? And when we went half-assed Sweden, it was sort of like what all the states did is sort of like what, what that looks like, you know? Um, I, I, I think that's right. I mean, you have an uncoordinated state by state just trying to get by without, you know, having your hospital system fully collapsed, thinking you were getting away with it into mm -hmm. the fall and then getting smacked by this like huge wave over the winter and then going into sort of survival mode in the areas where it was necessary. Yeah, it's a good point. Rob. And so what do you think about then? I mean, Biden's testing reset, for example, mm -hmm. like yeah. the, the changes there, if we're going to, you know, not repeat the half ass Sweden, which is the a new term for me, <laughs> but I, I think I understand what you mean. Well, what is the role of testing? You two have been probably the biggest, you know, advocates and people covering testing, you know, over the course of, of the pandemic. Yeah. What does that look for? <laughs> what does testing look like in the future? What role is it playing in our lives? Well, yeah, it's I, I still have a hard time imagining that there's going to be a true full testing reset where we end up rolling out, you know, major numbers of of rapid tests and and use them in a in a coordinated uh, outbreak stopping kind of way like that. I still have a hard time believing. Um, I do think that if we can get the number of cases down, the amount of uh, capacity that now exists to do PCR testing means we'll probably uh, have very fast turnaround times, you know, like under, under a day. Uh, for mm -hmm. most people, most places doing PCR testing. And unless we get another huge outbreak, well, that's probably going to be fine for diagnostic testing. If I had to bet right now, are we ever going to do large-scale screening testing outside of particular locations like schools and universities, which are doing it and have, have done it? I, I think my money is now on no. What I'd say is like, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, we thought the model for testing was South Korea. Yeah. Where things were done, such as if you had a few cases in a city, everyone had to get tested in the city, you know, well, where yeah. once you knew you had an unconstrained outbreak, you made entire neighborhoods come in, do drive through testing and the drive through testing clinics were set up within 48 hours. We didn't do that. There was no leadership for that. It's a massive failure. It is responsible for the virus getting out of control in the spring. However, once that didn't happen, it was very, very, very hard to ever set up a, a regime like that, especially with the Trump administration basically having absolutely zero interest at the highest level. Yeah, they in, didn't want to. They didn't in want that kind that. of. They didn't want it, and they didn't do it. And now it's January. I mean, like, <laughs> and so looking forward, I think a testing reset is useful because it, the fact remains that we never, the U.S. federal government, never <laughs> strategically designed even what the playbook would be like, like there has not been cohesive thought as far as I can tell. But the fact is like the testing 
reset matters in that we do not have a system that reflects central management. <laughs> you know, like we don't have a system that is kind of logically set up. And so if there are a few logical changes you could make to it, if there are some different products you could roll out to just make it easier to find COVID cases, you know, that, that would help. This, this has been such a helpful conversation just to even listen to. And I was wondering, as you were speaking and, you know, what about the COVID tracking project that you've put so much work into? <laughs> like, are, are you going to close it down? Are you going to switch to vaccines? Like, where, where are your heads at? With that? Yeah, um, I can answer this one. I, you know, I, I think, well, we eventually we will stop doing data compilation. I think we've been really, you know, from the literally the very first day, we were like, when the federal government is really in play here, that is the correct place to do what we've been doing. We're like filling a gap here, not trying to become a federal agency. Um, I think from the first time I literally called you, right? Yes. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just fill the gap. So I think we are trying to figure out, you know, what that really looks like. If we wanted to have like tried to build the organization as like a permanent entity, we could have done like vaccine tracking or expand internationally mm -hmm. or some of those other things. But honestly, like, I want the U.S. government to do these things. I want them to feel responsible for it. It's, like, been flattering, I think, to have them include us in, you know, like, Biden's response plan, um, use, like, CTP data. On the other hand, like, that just does, that should not be what's happening. <laughs> and so, you know, we, we and we've yeah. been, you know, we've been talking with the federal government for a long time now. And in some cases, they now provide data that's, that's fantastic, like in hospitalizations. In other cases, um, as with cases, it's like pretty complicated. And then there are things like tests where still mm -hmm. the government accounting for, for tests, um, is, it's unreliable in some states. And so, you know, it's, it's just been really, really, really complicated to figure out what the right time to to exit would be i can't yeah. say this that like before it's all really said and done we will ha have basically surveyed every major covid data point at the state and federal level uh, and so like state by state as well as all the federal data and be able to say hopefully i mean this is this is more optimism be able to say hopefully here's where things broke down here's where these data pipelines didn't work here's where they did work and knowing that Next time, where do we deploy resources and funds to make sure that we build the data mm -hmm. systems we need at the beginning and not use um, some people from a magazine, a random data scientist, <laughs> um, and, and, you know, 800 volunteers to do this. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So hopefully we'll have that. And that would be, I think, a really valuable long-term contribution. Well, I remember when you said you were starting this Excel sheet to compile the numbers from the different states, I was like, yeah, that I, you know, good luck with that. And yet it was just a couple of days ago, uh, <laughs> Dr. Burks gave you guys a shout out as like, everyone should be watching uh, the Atlantic's COVID tracking project. I mean, <laughs> almost a year later, like this, the amount of impact and success of that has been mind boggling. You deserve so much credit for that. So, Or at you least you that. deserve like a government pension. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know what's funny about it? It's like the things that were that were genuinely hard about it. And I think Rob would attest to this too. Are just like how do you get somebody to look at a government website and make the same decision as the person who looked at that government website the day before and the person who looked at that government website two days before? And so one one of the things that it really has made me think about is just the capacity of state governments versus each other, as well as state governments versus like this thing we call the federal government, you know, which is yeah. actually a mess of contractors and, you know, political appointees and, and, you know, career civil servants and people who are just like serving as, you know, as part of U.S. digital service or whatever, because that's actually what the government is. But it's so tricky and complex to to even know where to start when it comes to the U.S., uh, in terms of like who should even be responsible for running COVID data, like it's yeah. the obvious answers are not great, I think. And um, <laughs> it, it was you. <laughs> <laughs> the irony of all of this is that we started out doing testing data, and we started doing te- testing data because the the CDC actually did publish testing data until February twenty fifth of last year or something. Uh, at which point, it stopped for. I think still unknown reasons, but of course we know the president was never thrilled with the testing data uh, mm. that came out. Um, first, we hoped that we would, you know, shame the U.S. government yeah, releasing totally. data that we thought they had inside, right. <laughs> right. and then it turned out that they didn't, in fact, have this data inside, and yes. that the effort of creating it was very labor intensive <laughs> and and difficult, and required hundreds of volunteers and the ad hoc construction of expertise. Yeah. By far the most shocking thing is that the government didn't have the data inside, which was that when we actually came to realize that was probably one of the worst days of the pandemic for me, just because of what it said about the overall rest of the capacity of the federal government to do this response. Uh, I would love to keep talking to you both for indefinitely, but thank you so much. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it was totally great to hear from you. And thanks for all your work. I hope you get a day off soon. Uh, yeah. And Dave, next time I'm having a bad day, I'm literally just going to call you that your accent instantly makes me happy. I can't even tell you. Um, oh, thanks, Alexis. All right. Talk with you soon. Bye. Talk soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you for the lovely conversation, as always. Um, yeah, it was great to talk to you in the lab. It sounds optimistic, right? Like, I, yeah. I do feel like we're in a good place, but that it's sort of like the last few miles of a marathon doesn't mean you stop running. Uh, And in fact, it could be really actually, you know, those are the hardest part. Um, (laughs) You just have to keep going though. And you literally did a marathon in the Grand Canyon. So you know why you're on it. (laughs) Right? Um, Well, yeah, it was technically farther than a marathon, but uh, I did (laughs) run across it. Yeah. And so the last parts were like coming back up the canyon. I would imagine. Yeah, that was the hardest and worst there, but... part. Yeah, we left right. before sunrise, so it was nice and cool and dark. And then you're running in the base of the canyon through most of it, and it's starting mm-hmm. to get warm. And then you're climbing, you know, and it's almost noon by that point, and you've run thirty miles, and the sun Jeez. is beating down on you, and you don't want like my legs almost wanted to stop you know, they did want to stop moving. I mean, they could barely keep climbing, but that's where, uh, you know, we're approaching that, that part of Mm -hmm. it right now. I think the winter can feel pretty bleak and, but you know, I think we're almost there. So 
thank you everyone for listening right. and, and keep holding on and uh, there's an end thanks Jim I'm gonna do the credits okay I would love that thank you Maeve because I am exhausted <laughs> you put ice on those legs of yours those pins <laughs> This show was produced today by Kevin Townsend with help from senior producer AC Valdez. Write to us at socialdistance at theatlantic.com or leave us a voicemail at 202-642-6487. If you like the show and want access to all of The Atlantic's journalism, the best way to do this is by subscribing at theatlantic.com slash support us. And check out the trailer for The Experiment, the new show Catherine is launching Next week, it's hosted by Julia Longoria. It's about myths and ideas at the heart of the American experiment and the way the powerful forces of history collide with our everyday lives. The first episode drops on February 4th. Thank you for joining again, Maeve, and hope you'll be back soon. Definitely, Jim. Talk to you later. All right. Bye. Bye. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between, like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly. How much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.